If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and to say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. And friends, let me tell you, today I am so excited about this conversation with Tony Pomonis and Tara Adams about an ethical framework for fundraising professionals who are working with elderly populations. Before we hit record, I shared with them that this is actually something that's near and dear to my heart because I have develop friendships with, frankly, so many donors who are in their 70s, 80s, and 90s. And so it, it is just something that, that oh my gosh, like I just, I feel very strongly about. And so when we had the opportunity for them to come on, I was like, yes, yes, we've got to get them on the podcast. But let me tell you just a little bit about them before we bring them on. So Tony made a huge career pivot. For nearly 15 years, he opened, owned, and managed regional restaurants. And I would be willing to bet that at the end of that 15-year run, he had built enough assets that he could have retired if he wanted to. And what did he do instead? He pivoted to fundraising. He moved into fundraising at the University of Illinois, and he has been doing that since 2015. And because, again, kind of an entrepreneur, also started the Cognitive Empowerment Consulting Group, which we're going to talk a little bit about because they really work on that ethical framework. Tara Adams is equally accomplished. She has degrees in finance, law, and education. And let me share with you, friends, she jumped into higher education administration after completing law school and became an advancement officer at the University of Illinois about five years ago. She recently moved over to Raleigh, which is a place that I've gotten to spend a lot of time this year as well, so I can literally picture where she might be right now. Hey, Tara, Tony, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Dolph. We're really, really honored to be here and to talk about this very important topic and just have this opportunity to to meet with you and have a meaningful conversation. Awesome. Awesome. So I kind of want to start, before we talk about the actual topic, I'm curious, how did you two end up working together? So we met serendipitously at a conference. Uh, we both attended, it's on topic, Dolph. We, had, we attended a lunch and learn 
about donors with dementia. Mm -hmm. And one of my colleagues, when I when I mentioned that that's the lunch I was going to, they said to me, oh, that's too dark. I don't want to do that. And so Tara and I were at this table, which wasn't that populated, right, Tara? Mm -hmm. It was small. There was only about five or six of us at this table discussing this very important topic. And although Tony and I work for the same system, Tony at the University of Illinois Foundation and myself at the University of Illinois College of Law, we really had not had much of an opportunity to meet and get to know each other before we sat down and started having a conversation about this topic. So you met at the Lunch and Learn, and obviously something happened after that. It's not like, you know, you all walked away and three years later you thought, oh, wait, I want to start the Cognitive Empowerment Consulting Group and <laughs> and somehow found the card in the pile of car guilt card that I like to think of it as like, we you know, we all have that stack of cards like, oh, these are people I've not followed up with. It's just our stack of guilt. So, I, so I'm assuming that's not what happened. What happened after the Lunch and Learn? So we really hit it off with Rob Hoffman, who was the one leading the Lunch and Learn, he works at the University of Minnesota, Duluth. We continued talking with him once that conference was over. We connected with a group that he had started of nonprofit and higher ed fundraisers who were discussing, researching, presenting on cognitive impairment issues within fundraising. And from there, you know, we really started digging in deeper into this topic, both with them and then also on our own. And after Tony had his own experience, I had my own experience on the road with donors who clearly should not be solicited for a gift. We realized that there was just a dearth of resources at the University of Illinois in particular. So that was really what facilitated Tony and I getting together and really working on our own first solo project, which was developing resources for the University of Illinois system. And through that, we realized, wow, if this big system is lacking in resources, I'm sure that there are many others who could also use similar services. And that's what really facilitated the two of us getting together and starting the Cognitive Empowerment Consulting Group. Tara, I got to go back for just a quick second because you mentioned that both you and Tony have had experiences with donors with dementia. And I would be willing to bet that a lot of the people who are listening to this podcast right now have not yet had that experience. So could you? share a couple stories. Tara, is it okay if I, if I, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you. So uh, Dolph, the thing that really catalyzed all of this, this entire journey for me was leading up to that lunch and learn. I was in Sarasota, Florida, and uh, I met a couple, we'll call them John and Jane, not their real names. And I was stepping into my role at the University of Illinois. And I had been there for about six months. And I had sort of picked up all these clues from my predecessors. There was a 12-month gap before I began that position. And these clues had said, go meet John and Jane. Jane is ready to make a gift. She's ready to be solicited uh, at the major gift level for a scholarship. So I went down to Sarasota. I went to their retirement facility. And the elevator banks opened and out steps John alone. And I was a little surprised, but he approached me and said, uh, good afternoon. It's nice to meet you. Please sit down, Tony. There's something important I need to let you know about. And my wife, Jane, is the same beautiful, talented, intelligent woman that I married over 50 years ago. But importantly, some days she is not herself. And just a few weekends ago, I went to pull the car around to take her to church. And I could not locate her when I came back into the lobby. And we found her about 20 minutes later 
standing next to the pool out back. And it was a very enervating, terrifying experience. And so I, I called a timeout. Uh, my inner monologue started going off, Dolph. And I said, John, is it even appropriate for me to be here? And he said, yes, she, she's anticipating your visit. She knows that you're an ambassador from Illinois. She's so excited. But, you know, just take my lead. And then I said, okay, John, that sounds good. However, I was prompted to bring a scholarship in tow, uh, a proposal for you guys to consider. I think that should be off the table. And he said, well, to the contrary, I have something called uh, conservatorship over my wife's assets. And me and my eldest daughter make these important, meaningful decisions for her. Why don't you hand that to me? And I will uh, share this with my daughter and we'll get back to you. So then I met Jane. It was a very challenging hour and a half that we spent together. She was having lapses in short-term memory. She was repeating stories. She had some lack of spatial and temporal awareness. And that's what led me to the Lunch and Learn where Tara and I met. And maybe most importantly, when I got back to campus, my supervisor, when I requested additional information, resources, best practices, guidelines, standards of conduct, through no fault of their own, all they could do was shrug because there was nothing available for the philanthropic sector writ large or for us at the U of I. So Tara and I started to have roundtables on campus. We were asking major gift officers for their experiences. And lo and behold, the vast majority of them had stories just like that one. Mm -hmm. And my own personal story actually came after the Lunch and Learn. I was initially intrigued by it because like I'm sure many people who are listening to this podcast today have family members who have been affected by Alzheimer's disease and dementia. So it was an issue that was near and dear to my own heart. And about a year after Tony and I had had this discussion at this conference, I had a phone call. I was given uh, an interesting project. We had a couple of funds at the College of Law that were untouchable due to documentation errors, issues getting the funds up to endowment level. So it was my job to go reach out to these families, figure out what we were going to do and, and solve the problem. So with one of these funds, the only contact information we had on file was for a nonagenarian, a, a woman in her 90s. I gave her a call. She picked up the phone and we had a very concerning 10 minute or so conversation. Again, very similar to Tony. It, she forgot really basic details. She couldn't tell me where she lived. She was losing track of day and time. She couldn't follow the conversation. It became very obvious very quickly that it was not going to be suitable to have a conversation about money or giving with this woman when it came to this particular fund. So I ended up doing my own internet sleuthing and found a daughter who happened to live in the area. I contacted her, identified myself, let her know that I had just had a bit of a concerning conversation with her mother. And that was you know, my reason for calling. She immediately said, oh, no, my mother has moderately advanced Alzheimer's disease. I'm her legal guardian. I make all of her decisions regarding legal issues and financial issues. Turns out very few people in her family even knew that this particular scholarship fund existed. It ultimately had a happy ending. The family rallied and put the money together to get this fund uh, up and running. But very similar to Tony, at the end of the day, I went back to my supervisor, you know, wanted to make sure that I did the right thing, wanted to you know, read up on any best practices or you know, what I should be doing in that scenario. And again, through no fault of their own, 
I got basically a shrug because there are no resources. There are no guidelines. There are no best practices to help fundraisers know how to navigate a very difficult and tricky situation when they're faced with a donor who's showing clear signs of cognitive impairment. I want to ask you all a question. Over the course of my career, I have worked with a number of LGBTQ major donors in their 70s. And quite honestly, primarily what I'm about to talk about are are primarily gay men where they never had a long-term partner, don't have any children, they find themselves in their 80s or 90s. And I will say, I mean, like, it, it feels to me like in, in soliciting them, especially as as some of their ability to really think critically and make decisions starts to become impaired, feels feels really difficult because there's not that family member to turn to. So help, help me and, you know, frankly, help our listeners, because I know we have got a number of listeners in that same boat. What What's the ethical mandate there? Yeah. So I think um, one of the things... One of the mantras that Tara and I live by, and this is through a, a series of discoveries, Dolph. So we've, you know, you, I'm sure you're familiar with the movie Jaws. We're going to need a bit, bigger boat. We were in a rowboat. We were writing stuff, job aids and having these conversations. And we just kept continuing that iterative process. We were writing more, researching more. One of the things that just really surfaced for us was this ideal of doing the right thing and getting caught doing it. And treating yourself as if you were that donor's family member. Oftentimes, we are warned in this profession to not get uh, too close to donors, to not become their friends, that we are professionals, that there is a uh, professional ideal to our work, that we are we need to continue to professionalize fundraising. One of the things that I like to push back against when I'm, when I'm told that is, hey, if there's a lack of advocacy for an individual, then we need to be that individual's advocate. And I think that's a very moral and ethical imperative for us. That's fair. I now want to ask you about a very specific situation. So when I was the executive director of an LGBT center, I actually will say I 100% crossed the line with some of our donors, became very close friends with some of our donors, which is, you know, as you know, like anyone who's been in fundraising or, or asked for money as, an, as a chief executive, like that just happens sometimes. Like you hit it off and you, you really like each other. And so there was one donor, major donor, who actually ended up leaving the, his entire estate to, to the organization, who said, Dolph, I have no children. I have not talked to my nieces or nephews in decades, and I'd like for you to be the executor of my estate. And that was a real ethical quandary for me because I really, I mean, I genuinely cared about this person. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, executor is a huge conflict of interest if you're yes. leaving your entire estate to mm-hmm. the organization. And it's funny because I'll share with you, I, I actually remember mentioning this to someone who was on our board who who is a judge and she said something that that really only a judge would say she would say well this is a this is an interesting question maybe we should talk to our legal counsel about this but so so i'm also curious like what would you advise someone who's in that situation where you know maybe you're the the fundraising officer of a smaller medium-sized nonprofit or the executive director and you have a donor who you're genuinely friends with and it's like hey will you be will you be my executor that's very difficult. I agree with the judge on your board that that is something that you should definitely talk to legal counsel about because you nailed it right on the head. It can be seen as a conflict of interest. 
And what speaks to me is, although this particular donor, you know, said he has no children, uh, but he does have nieces and nephews, you know, you never want to be in a situation where you're going to be accused of taking advantage of someone in their advanced age. Um, and so to me, you know, especially talking not just about this donor that you mentioned, but like you said, many others who, you know, might not have children or people close to them. You know, Tony and I, when we work with clients, when we're teaching workshops for our consulting practice, we advocate for a series of best practices. And one of those best practices is finding out, you know, if not a family member, you know, who else can we talk to if there are suspected issues? Are they working with a financial advisor? Do they have an estate planning attorney? You know, are there others who are in their purview who can help sort of make these difficult decisions or provide other options that may be available to you and to this particular donor or client? And I'll share with you that uh, I can tell you went to law school because that's 100% what legal counsel advised of us. <laughs> and legal yeah. counsel was like, uh, no, you should not do this. And then it was up to me to have that really difficult conversation with the donor, which on, and I'll say like, yeah, I think he was genuinely disappointed. Like he was honestly disappointed, but then also, you know, kind of helping walk him through, okay, who, who else could you ask? And he actually ended up with someone who'd been a friend for you know, decades, he and all the rest was like, okay, you know, let's, let's hope his friend <laughs> survives him because <laughs> they were, they were age cohorts. I mean, like, you know, they were within like two or three years of each other. Yeah. So, you know, we, we all were like, okay, you know, <laughs> let's hope this works out. One of the, one of the stories that Tara and I share are um, several newspaper headlines that have, that have hit the presses over the years. And one of the things we always implore folks to do is, you know, make sure that your activity if it were reported, <laughs> that it would not cause shame or harm to either you or the institution or or even the public, the public's uh, esteem of the institution. Mm-hmm. You know, do no harm is an important first rule, which harkens back to what Taryn, you have just been talking about. So obviously, it, it was a scandal, could potentially be that newspaper scandal, if we're soliciting someone with dementia and not talking to their advocate or conservator or or something like that. Uh, also potentially a scandal if, you know, we're, if we agree to like, okay, you know, I'll manage your estate or I'll be the executor of your estate, manage your estate while you're alive, your affairs while you're alive, or be the executor when you're gone. What are some of those other ethical no-nos that we should be avoiding? Yeah. So solicitation is off the table. One of the things that Tara and I talk about over and over again is stewardship. So we are, we're not uh, robbing anyone. We're not uh, denying their agency on the other side of the coin. And at the same time, we're, we're not soliciting them for major gifts. We're not chasing ambulances. Um, You know, we, we are communicating with their trusted advisors and family members. We are over communicating. And one other thing here, which is very important. uh, We're not diagnosticians. We're not doctors. We're not mental health experts. So we are just eyes and ears. We're being as receptive as possible. We're taking in as much information as possible. We're not reaching conclusions broadly, but we are over communicating with all parties involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say one of the, the big ethical issues, yes, going off of what Tony just said is within the documentation. So whether you're a nonprofit, a higher ed organization, you likely have a database where you're keeping track of interactions and gifts And we want to make sure, again, that we are not trying to diagnose our donors. That is not our job. We don't possess the knowledge or the skill set to do that. Uh, In most cases, the records that we keep are available to our donors if they were to request them. So we want to be really careful about what we're saying and how we're saying it. 
while still making sure that the information is getting passed along, you know, so that if if we leave, if someone else comes in, that institutional knowledge is still going to be there while also making sure that we're towing that ethical line. And let me ask you, Tara, you had mentioned when you talked about the uh, the person you were working with and you said, okay, let me see if I can find a family member. And, and you dug around and you were able to find the daughter. In that situation, what do you feel comfortable sharing from an ethical perspective? And, and what do you think would be kind of off the table when you approach that family member? Absolutely. So if I recall correctly from that conversation, I started out pretty vague because again, I'm just cold calling someone out of the blue after I've had a very concerning conversation with their mother. Uh, and that's really how I phrased it. Yeah, you know, I said, you know, my name is Tara Adams. I work on behalf of the University of Illinois. You know, I'm working on this particular project involving a fund for one of your ancestors. The only person we had on record was your mother. I called her and I just had a very concerning conversation. So I wanted to reach out to you to talk to you about it. And I really didn't get much further than that in that particular conversation because she cut me off pretty quick to let me know that her mother did not possess the capacity to have that conversation and that she was in fact the correct person to be talking to. But I mean, on the flip side of that, what I would not be saying is, you know, hi, I just talked to your mother. I think she has Alzheimer's. Who, that's, I'm a complete stranger. I'm, I'm calling out of the blue. And now I'm trying to diagnose a beloved family member on the phone. Uh, you know, that's never something I think, even if true, would not go over very well. So again, staying a little vague, you know, but, but still, again, trying to get the point across that there's clearly something going on that's leading to this follow-up conversation that we're having just to assess whether or not our initial concerns are, are valid, you know, or maybe we were misreading into something. Maybe she was just, you know, reading the newspaper while also on the phone with me and just kind of distracted. Uh, You know, there's, there's a million other reasons why, but I think it's, it's coming in again, very tactful. These issues are, are really difficult for a lot of people, you know, whether it's talking about their, their own physical and mental health or that of a beloved family member. So I think you want to start off as, as tactful and as, as graceful as you possibly can when having these conversations with others. So that leads me, Tara, to, to think about something that I've got to ask about. When you, when you or when a fundraiser does those initial calls to a family member, which are very delicate. How do you avoid getting sucked into potential family drama? So for example, I could also see that daughter saying, oh, we've been trying to convince my mom for years and we won't, we need your help. Or that daughter saying, I've not talked to my mom in 15 years and I don't want anything to do with you or her or et cetera, you know, click. So, so how do you, how do you avoid getting sucked into that drama? Yeah, that's difficult. You know, that's very difficult to do. And I mean, I think in that situation, you have to take a step back. And I think it's also very contextual. You know, are you talking to someone who's brand new that you have very little contact with? Or is this someone that you've developed a relationship with over the years and now you're trying to reach out and sort of get some some secondary insight if you're noticing something? So I think it's all contextual. I think it's important as a fundraiser that you also be including others within your organization to help make some of these difficult calls, especially if it does look like 
you're about to get sucked into some family drama. That's the last thing we want. Because again, you're working as a representation of your institution or organization. And going back to what Tony said earlier, the last thing that we want is for an accusation to be that this institution, this organization is now getting involved in some difficult family issues. That's the last thing that we want. So I think it's important to be bringing others in as much as you possibly can at every stage of these conversations in order to ensure that that very thing does not happen. Yeah. And Dolph, when, when we're dealing with those two extremes, it's the individual who's very concerned or the individual who hasn't had any contact in 15 years. One thing we want to do is, and Tara said this more or less, but we, we widen the net. So we want to make sure that we are being as inclusive of, as possible with internal and external stakeholders. Does the family member have some sort of legal guardianship or conservatorship? Is there a power of attorney? We just wanna make sure that we are sort of wayfinding and figuring out how can we sort of circle back around and make this as big a space as possible. Cause I mean, again, we wanna make sure that we are you know, doing no harm and, and, and ensuring that things are being done appropriately and that we are advocating for the individual. And so I could see where at a university system, this probably comes up quite a bit because many of us have lifelong relationships with our, with our schools. So we graduate from there and then we stay in touch. And so what about the small and medium-sized nonprofits where they're, you know, frankly, that lifelong relationship from 22 to 92 is, is a lot more rare. Yeah. So that's tricky too, because a lot of those smaller shops, let's say they don't have that bandwidth or capacity to do much more beyond the mailers or the event-based fundraising. And then you've got a whole litany of concerns because if someone gets a, a piece of mail and it elicits a stimulus response, so let's say they, they start giving annually or quarterly or monthly whenever they get the mailer, well, that in and of itself is an ethical problem, isn't it? And so we need to make sure that we are kind of uh, intentionally thinking through our processes because those smaller shops are, again, very, very, I guess, reliant upon that event-based or mail-based work. And if someone is, if someone doesn't have the wherewithal, if they don't have the donative capacity, and I'm sure Tarek, you can unpack this a little better than I, but if they don't have the donative capacity, we cannot be asking, we cannot be really engaging with them that would elicit that response. And real quick, I got to jump in. I'm pretty sure I know what you mean when you say donative capacity, but let me make sure I do. Yeah, Tara's the expert here. So please go ahead, Tara. Yeah. So when we talk about donative capacity, we're talking about someone's uh, mental capacity to make a gift during their lifetime. Now, a lot of people may have heard of the term testamentary capacity, and that refers to someone's ability to make or create uh, or amend an estate plan. Now, there's a slight difference there. So with testamentary capacity, one of the nice things is that you can make a change to your estate plan pretty much at any point in time between the time you create it and the time of your passing, so long as that capacity still exists. With donative capacity, the one big difference is that when you make that gift, when you write that check, it's permanent. You can't take it back. You cannot amend it later. Uh, so when we refer to donative capacity, what you're really referring to is that you understand that you're making a gift. You understand what exactly it is that you're giving away. You understand how that relates to your overall wealth. You know, you understand that it's going to be impacting you financially in one way or another. And again, most importantly, that the gift is permanent. They have to understand that they cannot take it back. 
And not only must a donor understand all of these elements individually, they have to understand how they relate within each other to a specific gift. So it's not enough that they understand that they're making a gift to your organization. They have to know all five of those elements and how they interrelate to this one specific gift that they're making. Got it. Thank you. And and so it, so it sounds like potential red flag. Let's say I'm at a small or medium-sized organization with a with a one-person development office. And you know, we're sending out our fall mailers and we send out the October letter and we got a $1,000 check from from Jane and then we send out the November letter and we get a $1,000 check from Jane. We send out the December letter and we get a $1,000 check from Jane. Uh, obviously, that's a red flag, but is there a threshold? I mean, is it is it, okay, we got, you know, monthly checks of $50 and we got monthly checks of, you know, $100. What's that threshold that in a small shop, the development director needs to say, wait a minute, I, I need to just, I need to reach out and have a conversation. I would yeah. say that it's really contextual. And again, because this this is going to be different for every shop of every different size. So I would say that you need to go back and look at that person's giving history. When you started sending mailers years ago, have they been regular givers? Or is this pattern something new? Have they been regular givers, but at a, a small, you know, like you said, $50, and now all of a sudden you're getting checks every month for $1,000? Or are you seeing a precipitous increase in the amount of money you're getting? So was it $100 and then was it 1000 and now is it 5000 And is it continuing to get bigger consistently? I think it's all contextual. So you need to look back at the giving history, the history that this person has with your particular organization to see whether or not any of these giving patterns may throw up a red flag. And again, going back to it, I know we keep hearkening on some of the same things, but again, talking to internal constituents then reaching out to this particular donor or external constituents just to see, you know, is this something that you're noticing that needs to be followed up on at one point, you know, do internally or externally something needs to happen or to change. Dolph, uh, a few years ago, Tara and I presented at the National Association of Charitable Gift Planners. Um, And uh, one of the individuals there was working on behalf of a wealth management firm. And they said that within that firm, they had a database where if there was a variance that was greater than 50%, it created a little flag so that an individual could then look at that and see if there was indeed sort of a fact pattern that would lend itself to believe that there was something going on. Well, this individual who gave significantly more, how old are they? We know that 85% uh, of 85-year-olds have some form of cognitive impairment. That's a, that's a clue. That's one of those contextual clues that Tara's been kind of sharing. And I, I think... There is no particular like one cure-all or, or answer or, or panacea to this question. It's a, it's a very big question. But the one thing that um, I'll share with, with everyone, and I think Tara will echo this, since we've been conducting this work and since we've been having these conversations with folks, there's that ounce of prevention piece. There's that preparation piece. Because we have a certain level of preparedness now, when we go out into the field and we talk with people and we meet with people, we're, I think we're more aware of what's going on and we're more confident in our interactions. You know, we don't have to be certain, maybe. We don't have to operate with 100% certitude on what our activities are all the time. But if we're communicating clearly and effectively and honestly, I think we're in much better shape than we were just a few years ago. I also just have to reflect, Tony, that part of what you described is frankly, also just good fundraising, especially if you're in a small fundraising shop. 
if someone's contribution, whether they're 40 or 95, goes up by 50%, it's not a bad idea to reach out. Yeah. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so it's kind of fundraising 101 too, like reach out and have a conversation. Follow up, yeah. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Well, you know, I know we could talk about this for at least another hour because you all have done so much important work in this area. But I really want to make sure I ask you the -the off-the-map question because as I was thinking about this yesterday, I was like, this is really the question I want to ask both of you. So I know that you both serve on boards of directors. And, you know, typically when you serve on a board, there's the expectation that you're fundraising. So let's imagine that one of your fellow board members, a colleague on on the board, comes up to you and confidentially says to you, I'm incredibly uncomfortable asking for money. Yeah, we have to meet people where they are, Dolph. And one of our processes that Tara and I have been working on is working with boards because specifically, as we all know, everyone's kind of a fundraiser in the 21st century, aren't they? I mean, most of these boards, they're expected to do some fundraising or friendraising or networking uh, projects. And so when, when someone says that, um, I think we need to be there for them as a resource and not necessarily to hold hands, but just to share, right? To, to share our lessons learned and our best practices. We've also worked on some decision trees when it comes to working boards. And if someone were uncomfortable with, you know, uh, asking or fundraising in and of themselves, what would it mean for that person to then experience something like we, we've been describing with cognitive impairment? It sounds pretty nervy. So we want to help sort of take out and diffuse the stress in that situation, let people know that this is something that has been encountered before and that there are some resources available. Mm -hmm. I, I love that. Tara, anything to add? Yeah. I mean, I always like to dig into the question of why. Why does that make you uncomfortable? What is it about asking for money that's facilitating this particular response? And then what are the next steps that we could potentially take to help overcome this? Is it that you don't know how to start the conversation? Is it the actual ask for money? Is it that you don't know how to get from the small talk to the actual question itself? Do you not know how much to ask for? I think digging a little deeper beyond just that initial statement can help answer so many of those questions. And then like Tony said, well, then we can facilitate some really positive next steps. We can work towards helping that person become more comfortable when it comes to asking for money or figuring out another way that they may be able to facilitate some positive outcomes for that particular board. Is it that you need to go with someone who has experience to kind of see how they're doing it? Is, are you more of a, a visual you know, learner and you want to read up on some resources to learn a little bit more about this? Or you know, is it just something that you're just so deeply uncomfortable with? We need to find another way for you to have a positive impact on this particular organization. But I think having that, that deeper conversation first is an excellent uh, step to take in order to sort of alleviate that particular situation. Also really good advice. And you're right. It's always a good idea for just to ask why. Kind of like that donor that increases by 50%. Hey, we noticed you're, <laughs> you're being a lot more supportive. You know, can you share with us the story? So yeah, it's, you're right. Always a good idea to ask why. Well, Tony, Tara, thank you so much for coming on. And, and listeners, 
you probably want to figure out how to reach out to them. And so here's what you're going to do. You're going to go to cognitiveempowerment.com. And that is the URL for the Cognitive Empowerment Consulting Group. And while you are there, you can learn more about Tara and Tony. You can find about, about their services, the trainings they offer. And also, by the way, they've got some incredible resources online that you can access for a one-time fee. And so, and I think you'll probably have lifetime access to those resources. So definitely worth your while to make sure you go to cognitiveempowerment.com and make sure that you're working with your older donors, especially those that might have diminished cognitive capacity in ways that are appropriate. Hey, the other other thing I want to let you know, friends, is that in the coming months, Tony and Tara are going to have an academic article coming out. It's entitled, Do the Right Thing and Get Caught Doing It. It is a case study on just that, doing the right thing when you're working with donors with cognitive impairment. Hey, Tony, Tara, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, Dolph. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right, listeners, you know that if you do not remember the URL, cognitiveempowerment.com, you can always go to our show notes at successfulnonprofits.com. And there we will include a link to cognitiveempowerment.com. We will also include a link to both Tara and Tony's LinkedIn profile so that you can connect with them individually as well. And friends, if you found this episode useful, if it made you think about maybe some donors you've worked with in the past or some ways that you can really strengthen the ethical framework of your fundraising operations, I would encourage you to share this episode with someone else. It might be a colleague at another agency. It might be a board member. It might be a mentor. But please make sure that you share this episode with someone else. And when you do that, I would also deeply appreciate it if you would rate and review this podcast. Last thing, there's three episodes that you should think about downloading if you found this one useful. The first is episode 61, Engineering Equity into Your Organization with Daria Torres. The second is episode 185, Six Ways Your Nonprofit Can Be More Trans-Inclusive with Andy Mara. And the final one is episode 214, Gender Matters in Philanthropy with Jeannie Sager. Because really what we're talking about today is how we as organizations can live our values, how we can live our values of equity and inclusion and treating people the way we are supposed to be. That is our show for the week. Friends, I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And one final thing, you know, I really never want to have to say this, but, you know, the lawyers make me, and I know we had a lawyer on today, so I should not say that, but it's true. The lawyers make me say this. I'm not an accountant nor an attorney, and neither I nor the Goldenberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. I mentioned to you that my organization, we went and we sought legal counsel, and I kind of shared with you what they said to me, but that's not legal advice. So please, if you find yourself in need of legal tax or accounting advice, find a licensed, qualified person. And licensure does not mean specialty. So a licensed, qualified person in the area that you need and get the advice you need.